Good morning. Please remain standing as I read scripture this morning. This is from the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you and good to be with you in this new year. I do want to wish you a happy new year. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning. And so if you're not already there, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So we find ourselves today at the beginning, at the beginning of a new year, and the new year brings with it all sorts of anticipation. There's new beginnings, and there's new offerings, and there's things that are ahead of us. Many of you in this room may have made resolutions already as we, as we head into 2022. The goals that are in front of you that you want to make central and important as we head into this new year. And so maybe you want to read more books, or watch less TV, or you want to travel more, or you're going to work out every day, or whatever it is that you've chosen to do. Some of you, even on day two, may have already broken your resolutions, and so you're already looking forward to next year when you can start again and try 
try once more. But there are all sorts of reasons for the resolutions and the goals that we set. But if we're honest, most of the time, our resolutions and our goals are born of dissatisfaction or regret. Dissatisfaction with what we've failed at or never even attempted to do, regret at the time that's been wasted or the opportunities that to this point in your life you've missed. And so when we look back, often there is a sense of melancholy. There may be a sense of of gratitude, of happiness, of thankfulness at the things we've experienced, but so much of our lives can be spent looking back and going, man, I wish I would have implemented this earlier. I wish I would have known that. I wish I would have started doing this when I was younger, because now at this point in my life, there are all these things that I feel I've missed out on. And it creates in us a desire to break those unhealthy patterns and to set new trajectories. So certainly, there is nothing inherently wrong with recognizing what we lack and desiring to improve. But for many, there are deeper feelings of regret that run underneath those surface desires. And often, that regret can be a testament to something that runs infinitely deeper in our souls, something far more profound than losing a few pounds or improving our time management. Those feelings can speak to a search for significance, for meaning, for purpose, for happiness. And when one season of our life draws to a close and reveals in it our regrets, there can for many people be a sense of despair that accompanies those regrets. And on a grand scale, a scale really that's never been recorded in any other means or in any other piece of literature, that's exactly what we find the author of Ecclesiastes giving us in this book. A reflection on one's own life. And for many of us, this will be your first foray into the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe you've read it on your own, but very likely if you've been around the church, even if you've been around the church for a long time, you likely have never heard a series through the book of Ecclesiastes or addressing the main themes of Ecclesiastes. And there's a whole lot of reasons why that might be. I came up with at least three. There certainly could be more. But I'll start by giving these three. First, Ecclesiastes is hard to understand linguistically. I mean, this book is part of what's called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is this ancient form of writing, this ancient poetry. This book is nearly 3,000 years old. It uses all kinds of metaphors and allegories and allusions and illustrations, and it uses language that is very foreign to modern Western readers. This doesn't read the way that the narrative stories of the Gospels read or, or, or even the way that the, uh, that the epistles are broken up by theme. Instead, what you have here are a series of musings, truisms, statements of general truth, one after the other, each of which stands on its own but isn't necessarily dependent on the context around it. And so while this book as a whole has a theme the way that that theme is communicated feels to us scattershot and disconnected. So for that reason, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're not going to read every verse together in our time together. We're not going to work through the book of Ecclesiastes as we typically do, which is kind of chunk by chunk chronologically. We're going to work through it instead, addressing the the primary themes of the book as they come up, realizing that a lot of this book has a tendency to repeat itself. But second, not only is it difficult linguistically, but Ecclesiastes can appear hopeless. 
I mean, if you were paying attention as Carol was reading that for us, you walk in going, really, this is how we're starting our year, right? You couldn't talk about a way to have a happier family or how to set appropriate goals. You had to talk about the fact that life is meaningless. I say that it can appear hopeless because I think if you actually read this book discerningly, there's actually much hope and instruction to be found. But at first blush, what we read are the regrets and laments of the author. And for that reason, it can and does feel heavy. So one commentator, a man named Philip Ryken, said it this way, some people think that Ecclesiastes is about the meaninglessness of human existence, but Ecclesiastes is really about the meaninglessness of life without God. But because the writer never gives up his belief in God, his ultimate purpose is to show us how meaningful life can be when we see things from God's perspective. There is a sense of hope to be found in this book, and we'll find it together. And third, the third reason this book is difficult and often not taught on is because Ecclesiastes lacks the explicit gospel connection we find in other Old Testament books. So think of our recent series on the book of Jonah. We're looking at this story of the life of Jonah. We see an amazing picture of God's sovereignty and his grace as he leads and guides and calls Jonah. We see allegory and picture in the life of Jonah. For instance, he he goes into the water and is swallowed up in a fish where he stays for three days, and we see a direct metaphor to what Jesus Christ experienced when he was swallowed up in death and stayed there for three days. We can see all kinds of direct gospel connection, not things that we're imprinting upon the story, but things that are inevitably there to be discovered in the story. But when we come to Ecclesiastes, what we find is very different. It's a critique. It's a cultural commentary. It's a declaration about the the meaninglessness of a godless perspective and how people who do not have a, a, a perspective that is rooted in their understanding of God find ultimately vanity and emptiness in life. So the question then remains is this, why then should we study this book? And again, I want to point, draw our attention to Philip Ryken and his answer to that question. We should study Ecclesiastes because it is honest about the troubles of life. More than anything else in the Bible, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world. We should study Ecclesiastes to learn what will happen to us if we choose what the world tries to offer instead of what God has to give. We should study Ecclesiastes because it asks the biggest and hardest questions that people still have today. What is the meaning of life? Why am I unhappy? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? And in that way, Ecclesiastes is really written for the doubter and the depressed. It's written for the skeptic and the searching. See, the blessing of Christianity, the blessing of our faith, is not simply that it provides heaven as a future reward for our present hardships. The blessing of Christianity is that it provides intense meaning and hope to us in the midst of our present hardships. 
Christianity is not, as Marx might call it, the opiate of the masses, numbing us to the pain or monotony of everyday life. If that was the case, the Bible and God in his sovereignty would not waste his time addressing the difficulty of life. Instead, he would pretend that it does not exist. No, Christianity instead clarifies and intensifies the purpose and experience of our everyday life. It's what's meant when we say that Jesus is a redeemer, that he mends what we've broken, that he makes beautiful what we've marred, that he makes valuable what we've treated as cheap. As we come to this book, we find the life story, the memoirs of King Solomon, at least historically and traditionally. That's who authorship has been attributed to. There's all kinds of reasons in this book to presume that, most of which are found right in this first chapter. It speaks here of his wisdom. We know that, that, that Solomon was given an opportunity to ask anything that he wanted of God, and what he asked for was wisdom. God granted that request in an amazing, incredible way to the point where Solomon became the wisest man ever to live and walk the earth. He refers to himself here as the son of David, and in this text, Solomon is giving us his own memoirs. It's a cautionary tale. It's his means of keeping those who would read it from driving down the same dead-end roads that he had traveled. Solomon does not want us to be satisfied with resorting to fatalism. His goal is not that we would walk away having grown comfortable with the idea of a joyless experience, but rather he wants us to see that the pain of this world exists because mankind tried to find ultimate pleasure in creation rather than the Creator. And he wants us to see that the real happiness that we do experience in this life is just a foretaste of the joy that's to be found when we properly orient ourselves to see and worship our Creator. So some 3,000 years after its writing, Ecclesiastes remains relevant because while the trappings of the world around us have continued to change and evolve and differ over time, the humanity at its center, the heart of humanity, has remained exactly the same. And so look, if you would, at the first 11 verses or so. This is the portion where the elderly Solomon, looking back on his life and looking back on his own experience, points us to what it is that he's experienced and what it is that he's gone through. Here he is, the wisest man who has ever lived, educated and wealthy and connected and charming. Who better to take up the task of finding the meaning to life? And so he sets out to survey the best manner of living that the world, devoid of God, has to offer. And he indulges in everything. He withholds nothing from his human experience. He looks down every possible avenue of happiness. He walks the halls of power. He studies nature and the philosophers and the theories of his time. And his final answer to what it is that life is about is this, meaninglessness meaninglessness, vanity, vanity, all is meaningless. And that really sums up the book. If you're looking to find happiness in anything this world can provide, you're hopeless. Everybody feeling good? And look at the examples he's going to cite for us because he begins to walk down this path that he's going to continue throughout the book of saying, show me your idol and I will show you how it fails. 
whatever it is you're putting your hope in, demonstrate it to me. Tell me what it is, and I can show you through my own experience how it will not satisfy. And so he begins in verses 3 and 4 by saying this, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains. Now, what is it that he's actually saying here? He's painting a picture for us. He gives us the image of a man working in the field. This man shows up every day. He works hard, maybe for good reasons, maybe for selfish reasons, but he shows up and he works hard and he sweats and toils and he plants and harvests. But here's the ultimate point that Solomon draws out. The work is never done. Generations come and generations go. This man gets up in the morning, he works hard, he goes to bed, he does the same thing day after day, and at the end of all of his life, there is still work remaining to be done. In our context, it would be like taking a time-lapse camera and following you through your morning routine, right? So you get up and you shower and you dress and you go get in your car and you sit in traffic and you turn on your computer and you eat your lunch and you go home and you watch TV and you wake up the next morning and you shower and you dress and you drive to work and you day after day after day, it's this Groundhog Day experience, monotony and drudgery. But then he uses this phrase again, but the earth remains. If your life is all about work, if you're trying to find your meaning in what it is that you can physically accomplish, mentally accomplish, the work that you can have finished, the end of that is that the only legacy you will leave is the work left undone. In other words, All the work in this world cannot offer lasting meaning inherently. The Bible is going to speak in all different ways about the benefits of work and the glory of work and the intentionality of work and the worship of work and the benefit of work and all of those sorts of things. But here's what he's saying. Anytime that you make a good thing, an ultimate thing, you have lost the whole meaning and purpose of why that thing was given. To elevate work status, accomplishment, achievement, success to a level that it does not deserve in your life is to take something created with intentionality by God and turn it into God. But the problem is that that God can never bring you satisfaction and happiness. This world cannot offer lasting meaning. And so he turns his attention now in a whole different way in verses 5 through 7, and he begins to address nature in itself. He says, if you want to learn the meaning of life, he goes, all you have to do is look at nature because the sun rises and the sun sets and the winds blow and the water flows, but there is nothing new under the sun. Each day is the same. There may be minor variations and differences, but each one is just a repetition of a day that has come previous. In other words, what he's saying is even the things that we tend to view as new in our lives are just a new way of packaging what's old. So we look at this and we go, what does it mean that there's nothing new under the sun? Think of just how much things have advanced or changed or been different in the course of our lifetimes. 
Think about how different things are, right? We have the, the advent of the internet and the smartphone, and we've got all kinds of advances in technology and communication and travel and all of these different things around us that have shifted. But here's ultimately Solomon's point. He's saying, look, the means by which we communicate may change and the technology may change, but none of those things bring new meaning, intentionality, or purpose to life. It's just a, a new way to repackage what is old. So I struggled to think about a way to illustrate it, and here's the best way that I could come up with. We'll see if it's good or not. I've seen a lot of commercials lately about, about uh, various pieces of technology that you can bring into your home to, to increase and benefit your communication. And the two that came to mind for me in particular were the Facebook portal and the Google Hub. Both, both of these things have screens and cameras on them, and if you've seen the commercials, typically what it is is two people, maybe they're family members, or maybe they're dating, or maybe it's a, a grandmother and a granddaughter cooking together in the kitchen, but the idea is that these little cameras in their kitchen are following them around as they talk to each other, or they demonstrate how they're cooking a dish, and it's a new way to spend time together. Now, there's nothing wrong with that inherently, with any of those things. These are, are tools for communication, maybe with distant family or those that you love. But, but notice the promise that's underneath. The promise that's underneath those things is intimacy and human connection. It is the very same thing that people have lacked and desired for the whole of human history. It's what human beings have been doing for thousands of years, but we've just added another layer of digital obscurity between ourselves and other humans, and we've called it advancement. Nothing new under the sun, all kinds of benefits of technology, but no new meaning to be found in this world because the world in and of itself can't provide additional meaning to your life. So we use nostalgia the old and the familiar, to sell what is new. And the world offers nothing new. So then he turns his attention once again in verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. They're tiring. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Whatever it is you desire, if you were given it, it wouldn't be enough. So we think back 30, 40, 50 years to somebody who has a massive record collection and spends their whole life putting together the records that they want to keep for the, for the remainder of their life, and they invest all their time and their energy and their money in those things, and now we walk around with little things in our pocket that can access every song that has ever been written in better quality than you could have ever purchased it previously. Whatever it is you desire, if you were given it, it still would not be enough. There's an anecdotal story that goes along with this. It's a very common and familiar one, although it's not entirely clear if it's true, just to put that up front. But the story is told about John D. Rockefeller, who was perhaps the wealthiest man alive at the turn of the 20th century. And he was purportedly asked one day by, by a newspaper writer, I, I just have to ask you, sir, how much money is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. It's profound, isn't it? profound in its honesty. Now, whether or not that story is true, the reality of that experience certainly is, that there is no amount of business success or physical delight or human relationship that can be so great that it is ultimately satisfying. 
And then he caps all of this off in verse 11. He says this, there is no remembrance of former things. All the things that have come before, all the things in the past, they're eventually forgotten. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be. For all of the advancement and for all of the self-promotion and for for everything that is around us where we think we are at the pinnacle of humanity, the advancement of mankind, he says, even those things will be forgotten. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So Solomon is marked as a man by his wisdom. This truly godly virtue. You read the book of Proverbs and that idea of wisdom comes up over and over and over again. It's something worth desiring. It's something worth asking for. It's one of the things that we're told if we ask of God for, He will guarantee that He will grant it. There's such an emphasis on wisdom in the Bible and yet here's what Solomon says. Wisdom in and of itself was not enough to satisfy And so he says, even when I experienced all of this wisdom and had all of this knowledge and everything given to me, he goes, in that moment I had to turn to madness and folly. Even my wisdom was insufficient to bring me lasting happiness. So I tried madness and folly. I tried partying and entertainment and drunkenness and debauchery. And he says, if you think you're going to leave a lasting earthly legacy, all you need to do is look back at history to realize how quickly your accomplishments are forgotten. Because the world cannot offer a lasting stability. So the question, after all of this darkness and introspection, is this. So then where do we find hope? And the reason that we have to ask that question is because you will read the first 11 chapters and not find the answer to that question. But here we do get a hint because Solomon refers to himself here as the preacher. He was one who was a proclaimer of the truth and goodness of an almighty God. It was in God that Solomon ultimately found his final satisfaction, and we must necessarily look to the same place. So the big question as we think about this today is this. Does your belief system provide answers to the big questions? Does what you believe and the way you model your life after those beliefs actually answer the biggest questions of life? Does it answer what the meaning of life is and if life is really worth living and where happiness lies? The corollary, if you're here and a Christian explicitly, is does God really care? Is Jesus actually enough? Does your faith provide hope and purpose? Are your beliefs, Christian or non, are your beliefs robust enough to carry you through this life? And if not, what are you going to do about it? Well, Jesus 
gives his answer to that question in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 47, where he makes this statement. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You may be right now in a season of flooding. Where circumstances are surging and where trials are battering against the foundation of your life. And maybe for the first time, or at least for the first time in a long time, you're wondering if that foundation is going to hold. And understand this as well, if you're not in a season like this and you haven't experienced, rest assured that season is coming. And the question you need to ask yourself, friend, is how will you fare when life throws everything at you? When the things that you've placed your hope in begin to fade or fall? When that relationship that you find your utmost meaning in begins to deteriorate or crumble or be removed altogether? When your health that you've always been able to count on begins to fail? when your children, whom you love most in the entire universe, begin to struggle and wrestle and fall away in ways that you couldn't have imagined. And if you're doubting or wondering or fearful or unsure, this text implicitly points to the only one who can provide that explanation and that foundation. And that sure foundation, Jesus himself, reveals what is lacking when he said reveals what is lacking in our lives when he says in John chapter 14 I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me so I heard an explanation of this passage that I found so helpful and I want to share it with you which is that when Jesus gives those three terms for who he is and what he does, he is actually giving us the foundation, the eternal, secure answer for what it is that our life has to be rooted around in order to have meaning, in order to have purpose. And so he starts by saying this, I am the way. And in saying that, he's saying, I offer direction. I provide a path, a a plan, a purpose So that when you're unsure where to go or how to get there, Jesus himself arrives as both the pathway and the destination. He says, I am the truth in a world that doesn't even believe in truth, that believes that truth is inherently relative, that believes that truth cannot be known or experienced, and yet tries to claim a moral certainty for how people ought to live and how they ought to believe. In the midst of that world, Jesus comes in as the truth saying, I offer stability. 
I am unchanging, I'm unmoving, I'm unwavering. I am the steady rock into which you can anchor the pillar of your life. I am reliable and sure. I can't be taken away and I can't be replaced and I can't be worn down. When I set my love on you, you can't lose me and I won't lose you. So when you're unsure what to believe or how to believe, Jesus arrives as the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And finally, he says, I am the life. I offer meaning and significance. Not just a temporary movement that you can join or a cause that you can sign on to, but guaranteed eternal, purposeful life. It's the truth that the Apostle Peter declared when he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That Jesus alone is the fulfillment of the direction, the stability, and the meaning that we all desperately crave. So I came across this quote from a book by a man named Francis Spuford. He's a theologian in London, and here's what he says in the course of his book. He says, on the cross, Jesus isn't just feeling the anger and spite and unbearable self-disgust of this one crowd on this one Friday morning in Palestine. No, he's turning his bruised face toward the whole human crowd, past, present, and to come. And he's accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The door of his heart is wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole pestilential flood, the vile and roiling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he is saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I am big enough, I am wide enough, I am the father who longs for every last one of his children, I am the friend who will never leave you, I am the light behind the darkness, I am the shining your shame cannot extinguish, I am the refining fire, I am the door where you thought there was only wall, I am what comes after deserving, I am gift without cost, I am, I am, I am before the foundations of the world. I am. For whatever your fears are today, and I say that realizing that there are many within the sound of my voice who are experiencing real fears, whatever the worries and the doubts, whatever crushing morosity is pressing on your life today, Jesus is saying, I am big enough to handle it. And I wonder if we take him seriously when he extends that offer. As he he extends to us the invitation to even pour our doubts on him, do we take him up on that? When was the last time where we said with the Father in the book of Mark, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
where we actually went to God and said, listen, I know you're good and I know you're gracious and I know you love me, but I fear that you're not good and that you're not gracious and that you don't love me. Do we realize that our God is big enough and strong enough and loving enough and compassionate enough and gracious enough to hear the most desperate cries of our heart, the most disconcerting doubt of our mind, the lack of certainty and the lack of belief that we often feel, and that he's able to hear that and absorb it and respond to it and extend his love and grace in its place. I think the truth of the matter is far too often we have such a small view of God that we presume he's going to interact with us the way that we would choose to interact with people like us. We believe he's going to interact with us based on our goodness, based on our sincerity, based on our ability to muster up our belief and convince him that we are worthy of his love. And the whole time Christ is on the cross saying, the the doors of my heart are wedged open to you. I'm not going anywhere and I will not fail. So brother and sister, as we read a book that is admittedly difficult, would we remember that the end of this story does not happen in chapter 12. The end of the story happens when Jesus Christ, God himself, steps into time, becomes man, goes to the cross, dies, and rises again to prove his love, his power, his worth, and his might for your life now in the middle of whatever you're experiencing. That is the God whom we serve. Be encouraged that that God knows and loves you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that we get to come to you as Father. We thank you that we don't have to come to you with royal titles, though you deserve them, and that we don't have to come to you with with human expressions of humility, though certainly, God, we desire to be humble, but that the primary way that you have chosen to interact with us is as Father as a dad who delights in hearing the, pra- the prayers and the cries of his children. And God, just like any good loving father, but to a far greater extent, you are not bothered when you hear our doubts or our concerns or our fears or our worries. That you can hear angry cries and desperate cries and sad cries and worried cries. And that your heart is not turned away from us. God, I thank you that your love is so certain. And I pray, God, that in the moments where we question your love, your presence, your power, your goodness, or your ability, I pray, God, that in those moments you would convince us afresh and anew of who you are and what it is that you choose to do. So, God, for those in this room who may wrestle with you, either knowing you but questioning if you're capable, or finding themselves in a position where they find it difficult to believe in you altogether, Would this be the day where we throw our questions, our concerns, and our doubts at you and trust that you are so good and so big that you can respond? God, it's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. Amen.